actually thought Paul was going to root for the uh, New York Rangers to uh, win the Super Bowl, but that's okay. I still love him anyway, even though he made that comment about the Dallas Cowboys. Hey, it is so great to see you guys here this morning, and uh, thanks for coming out. And if today is your first time with us, love to meet you after the service. I'll be hanging out up here. Come on up and say hi, and I'd love to get to know you for a minute or two. So uh, when I say the word Pandora... How many of you think of music? Go ahead, you can raise your hands when I say Pandora. You think of music. Okay, how many of you think of jewelry? And how many of you think of Greek mythology? There we go. Okay, so uh, the music won this morning. Last, time was actually, uh, last night was actually evenly split between the three. We're going to be talking about the Pandora from Greek mythology. And if you have not been a child in a number of years or don't have any children who are very young and you've forgotten your Greek mythology, Pandora, um, as one uh, writer put it, was a beautiful but silly woman to whom Zeus gave two gifts. And the first gift was an insatiable curiosity, and the second gift was a sealed jar. Now, we know that as Pandora's box due to a, a mistranslation sometime hundreds of years later, but he gave her an insatiable curiosity and a sealed jar, and he said, don't ever open the sealed jar. And even if your only familiarity with Pandora is through the music, internet, radio service, you know what's going to happen next in the story of Pandora's box. And so Zeus sent Pandora down to earth because he was mad at Prometheus because Prometheus had stolen fire and had given it to the humans. And so he sent Pandora to be the wife of uh, Epimetheus, who was uh, uh, Prometheus's twin brother, and he was trying to punish the humans, and there's all this stuff. If you've ever read any Greek mythology, there's all this intrigue and arguing and infighting and stuff going on between the gods. So anyway, Zeus sends Pandora down to the earth with these two things, with the insatiable curiosity and with this sealed jar, and she lasts, I don't know, a few weeks, maybe a couple of months or so, but finally, her curiosity gets the better of her, and she opens this jar, and out fly all of the evils that we now know in the world. There's greed, there's vanity, there's strife, there's pride, there's argumentativeness, there's hatred, there's you know, all of the different evils in the world. And just as she's clamping down the top, the lid, back on the jar, hope is about to come out of the jar and it gets caught in the lid and stuck inside of the jar. And Zeus's plan all along had been that hope was actually going to escape from the jar and be overwhelmed by all of the evils of the world, and then humanity would have no more hope. But because hope got caught in the jar, we still have hope. We still have this, this desire, this expectation, this possibility that good is going to overcome evil. And that's our connection to our year verse. And today, we're talking about our year verse from 2015 for this year. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Let's hold unswervingly to the hope we profess because he who promised is faithful. Hundreds and hundreds of writers have written about, people have talked about hope for, for just centuries, really for millennia. The uh, inspirational writer uh, Orson Marden said, there's no medicine like hope, no incentive so great, no tonic so powerful as the expectation of something tomorrow. The Russian novelist Dostoevsky actually looks at the flip side, the lack of hope. He says, to live without hope 
is to cease to live. Almost every politician, probably every politician who's ever tried to get elected has used hope as the foundation of their campaign, whether they do it explicitly or implicitly. They're essentially saying, if you vote for me, the world is going to get better. If you put me in office, your life will be better because I am part of the government. I'm leading you, and so your life is going to be better. And studies have shown that people who are ill are much more likely to recover if they have hope than people who have the exact same disease but don't have hope. In fact, this morning I saw that there's going to be a study released this week. They, they studied 5,000 people over the age of 45, and they found that the people who had hope and optimism were twice as likely to have healthy hearts when they got to uh, older ages than those who were more pessimistic or, depending on how you want to look at it, more realistic. And so hope is an incredibly powerful motivator. It's enabled people to persevere through the most difficult and challenging of circumstances. Those of you who love poetry may have heard of uh, Emily Dickinson's poem, Hope is the Thing with Feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. You know, you read a poem like that, or you listen to some of those, just those quotes, those thoughts on hope, and it just gives you a just gives you a, a warm feeling, a feeling of optimism, a feeling of hope of that the future is somehow going to be better than the present, than the time in which we live. And so then when we come to our year verse, you can see why it's so, un, so attractive. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Let's hang on to the hope that we have because life is going to get better. God wants us to persevere. He wants us to continue on. He doesn't want us to give up. He wants us to hang on to our hope because the future is going to get better because he's going to make it that way. And hope can be defined uh, as, as a feeling of wanting something good to happen. And it has really three three components to it. The first one's obvious. It's something to do with the future. We don't hope for what we have. We hope for what we don't yet have, for something we want to have in the future. And we hope, secondly, for things that are good, or maybe we could even say for things that are better. Things may be pretty good right now, but we always want something better. We want more money. We want a better job. We want a better education. We want a better car or a better house or improved relationships or improved health. And so hope is not only future, but it's something good or something better, something that we're looking forward to. And then, of course, hope involves possibility. We want something good to happen. We wish for something better. We might even expect that something better is going to happen, but ultimately, there are no guarantees. There are possibilities, and those possibilities keep us going, but there are no guarantees. There are no certainties, because hope is a possibility, but that possibility is enough in so many cases uh, to affect the course of our lives. And earlier I mentioned uh, that hope 
was the last thing that Zeus put into Pandora's jar and that it didn't escape at the end. And as a result, we've got hope that all these evils that were released into the world may someday be overcome and maybe we can be part of the overcoming of those evils. The German philosopher Nietzsche takes a very different approach to Pandora's box. He's actually got a very different, almost an opposite, of inter opposite interpretation as to what was going on, especially as it relates to hope. Nietzsche argues that everything in Pandora's box was evil, including hope. In fact, he says hope is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man. Hope is the worst of all evils, Nietzsche argues, because it prolongs the, the torments of man. He says that hope is essentially the unrealistic expectation that things are going to get better. It's a denial of reality, and it torments us because it promises something that it's completely incapable of delivering, and we would be all better off if we were facing reality. It's kind of like we're living in a dream world, like in The Matrix or uh, in, in the movie Inception, you know, where they're just living in a dream world trying to escape from reality, but when they wake up, they have to face the fact that nothing's going to get better. It may make us feel good for a period of time, but it's not really real. And as a result, Nietzsche says, hope is not good. It's a false hope. And so it's evil. You know, and in some sense, Nietzsche's right. And, and you might not expect to hear that in church, that Nietzsche's actually right about something. But I think that it's good for us to listen to those who we don't necessarily agree with, because once in a while, they point out something that's true, something that can help us to grow and, and, and to learn from it, even if we disagree with them, even if they're not completely right. And in this particular case, I think Nietzsche has one thing right. Our world is broken, and if we're hoping that we're going to be able to fix it on our own, by ourselves, we're dreaming. People have been hoping that for centuries, for millennia, and the world isn't getting significantly better. I mean, some people buy lottery tickets in the vain hope that if they hit the jackpot, all of their troubles are going to be, are going to be gone. But in reality, the few people who actually do hit the jackpot find that all they've done is traded one set of troubles for another. Or we hope that if we get a raise, all our troubles are going to be gone or a better job or, or whatever it is. And yeah, we may improve on some of our problems, but ultimately so often all we do is trade one set of problems for another. And so in some sense, Nietzsche is right because false hope can keep us from facing reality. But in another sense, Nietzsche is absolutely wrong. Because not all hope is false hope. And centuries of experience have told us that hope is an incredibly powerful force and it can make a difference in our lives if it's actually founded in reality rather than just in, in an illusion. Our year verse starts out with the phrase, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And if that's where 
our year verse ends. If it ends with, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, then it's really no different than any of those inspirational quotes that we read. It may make us feel good. It may make us feel warm and fuzzy for a time being. It may actually encourage us and help us to get through some difficult times. But if that's all it is, then it's just simply a possibility. There's no guarantee. There's no certainty. And so maybe things will get better. Maybe our hope is founded, but maybe it's not. But that's not where our year verse ends. The verse continues, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we professed because he who promised is faithful. Our hope is founded in reality, not just in our minds, not just in self-help, not just in a, a quote that we could send out over Twitter, but it's founded in reality because the creator of the universe, our heavenly father, is faithful, and when he makes promises, he fulfills them. God's faithfulness means that he is both willing and able to deliver what he's promised. Sometimes I make promises and I really want to fulfill them. I really want to keep them, but I find I can't. And other times we make promises and later on we change our mind and we don't want to fulfill them even though maybe we're able to because maybe it costs us too much. But God always fulfills his promises because he is always willing and he's always able. And so our hope is not just a possibility our hope is a certainty. Yes, it's future-oriented. Yes, it's good or looking for something better, but it's not just a possibility. It's a certainty because the one who promised is faithful and he always keeps his promises. Now, God doesn't promise that all of our problems are going to go away if we trust in him. He doesn't promise that good is going to overcome evil today or tomorrow or next week or necessarily next month or next year. He doesn't promise that we're always going to have a, a perfect health. He doesn't always promise that we're going to have the perfect job that we love. He says, no, this is a broken world, and that's reality. But he says, I promise I'll be with you. I promise that if you come to me and confess your sins, I'll forgive your sins and cleanse you from your sins and remove your guilt and your shame so you can draw near to me without fear. You can draw near to me in confidence and you can find hope in times of trouble. We talked about that last week. So God doesn't promise that the world in which we live is going to be perfect right now but he does promise that he'll be with us and comfort us and strengthen us and give us hope. And he also promises that the next world is going to be the perfect world. It is going to be the world where there's no more pain, there's no more crying, there's no more, and you name it, anything negative is going to be banished. And so he's going to take us to be with him in that world. So he does promise that, and so we can have hope of a better life in that world. And so he promises that if we draw near to him, we can find comfort and we can find peace and we can find hope. Let's look for just a minute at what the Apostle Paul, who was one of the, uh, one of the founders of, of the early church, of early Christianity, what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And when, you, when I read this, it's going to sound an awful lot like what Nietzsche was saying at the beginning. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised... 
your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're of all people most to be pitied. Paul is essentially uh, echoing part of Nietzsche's argument. He's saying if our hope is just something that is inside us that isn't grounded in reality, if Jesus did not really rise from the dead, then all we've got is a nice-sounding philosophy, a bunch of platitudes, something that may make us feel warm and fuzzy, but ultimately, it can't deliver what it's promised. But Paul says that's not where it ends. Verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits, the promise of those who have fallen asleep. And since Christ has been raised from the dead, Our hope is certain, Paul says. Our hope doesn't rest on a philosophy. It doesn't rest on a set of religious practices. It doesn't rest on doing the right things, thinking the right things, saying the right things, living the right way. Our hope rests on a person who said, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. And then he pulled it off and he made it happen. And so our hope is as certain as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I realize that there are probably a number of you who are here today who are saying, that's all well and good. But honestly, I'm not so sure that Jesus really rose from the dead. And, and, and I understand that. And I'm so glad that you came here this morning. And especially if you're new to Renaissance, Renaissance is the kind of place, the kind of church where it's okay to ask those questions, where it's okay to say, I'm not sure that I agree with that. I'm not sure that I believe it. That's putting it politely. You say, I actually do disagree. I actually don't believe that. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want you to explore. I want you to ask those questions because we don't want to have a false hope. We want to have a true hope that's founded in reality. And I want to encourage you, if that's where you are this morning, to ask yourself two questions. First, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then where's his body? Show me the body, right? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, somebody ought to, at least in history, if not today, be able to produce the body. But nobody could. So what happened to the body? And that leads to the second, second question I want to encourage you to ask yourself. A lot of people would say that the disciples, Jesus' followers, stole his body. Okay, possibly. A lot of problems with that, not the least of which is that they would have had to have uh, uh, overcome a, a whole garrison of Roman soldiers who were trained uh, to stop people like that from doing things like stealing Jesus' body. But let's forget that. Let's forget that possibility. Let's assume for a second that Jesus' disciples stole his body. There were 11 of them after Judas had died. There were 11 of them. They probably got together and did this. Uh, Quite a number of those 11, more than half of them, died for their faith. They died saying, claiming that Jesus has risen from the dead. Why would they have died for what they knew to be a lie? People die for lies all the time because they're deceived. But if these were the guys that pulled off the deception, wouldn't one of them have said, hang on, don't kill me. The body's over here. Let me show you. And yet none of them did that. And I realize those two questions aren't necessarily going to convince you, 
but I hope that they'll get you to think. And if you want to dig deeper, and I hope you will dig deeper, we've got some resources that are, are linked to on our website. If you go to, to uh, renchurch.com forward slash notes near the end of the notes for this morning's message, got some links to a message that you can listen to that somebody gave, a couple of books that may be helpful. If you got questions, come and talk to me. Talk to Michael or somebody else on staff. Talk to the person who brought you. Love to talk to you about why I believe that it's historically reasonable to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So we live in a broken world. We live in a world that isn't the way that God created it to be. And that means we're going to experience pain, we're going to experience disappointment, and we're going to be tempted to give up hope. And about two and a half years ago, I went through an incredibly dark period of time. Went through a period of burnout where I could, for a period of time, I could barely get out of bed in the morning because everything looked so dark and so discouraging. And I found my hope waning. And I remember just saying, I, I just don't feel like I have any hope that tomorrow's going to get better. And one of the things that was so helpful to me in working through that period of darkness and depression and, and, and discouragement and burnout was just taking the time to reflect on the faithfulness of God. Thinking about, yeah, he made the promise that Jesus was going to die. He was going to rise again, and he pulled it off. If he could do that, he can lift me out of my darkness. Reading some of the Psalms and seeing how God was faithful in the lives of men and women uh, down throughout the ages, thinking of his own faithfulness in the past in my life, and so just focusing and reflecting on the faithfulness of God gave me hope. It, it really restored my hope, not because of a warm and fuzzy feeling, because it was so, a bunch of inspirational quotes that I was reading, but because I knew more and more and more, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that my hope was founded in the reality that I have a God who is going to keep his promises because he wants to, because he loves me, and because he's powerful enough to do it. God never makes a promise that he can't keep, that he won't keep. And as a result, I know he's faithful, and that helped to bring me out of my, out of my period of, of darkness and despair. And so pain and disappointment shouldn't cause us to give up hope. They should remind us of the reality that we are living in a broken world and that we can't solve the problems of this broken world by ourselves, that we need to turn to God. We need to, as we talked about last week, we need to draw near to him with confidence and say to him, Lord, it hurts. I'm discouraged. I'm disappointed. I'm losing hope. Strengthen me. Give me hope. Because life in this broken world is so difficult. C.S. Lewis, great thinker, great writer, great Christian philosopher, says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I was made for another world. And that gives me hope because it reminds me that the disappointment that I feel in this world doesn't mean that God is not faithful. Instead, it means that this world is broken and that there's a better world that awaits me. And I know it intuitively. And so I need to turn to him 
in my pain. I need to look to my heavenly Father and rest on his faithfulness, not my own ingenuity, not somebody else's encouragement, but ultimately on the faithfulness of my heavenly Father. And because of that, I can draw near to him and I can hold on to my hope unswervingly because I know that he who promised is faithful. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess because he who promised is faithful. Last week, I mentioned to you that one of my prayers for myself and for really for all of us and a prayer that I hope that all of you will be praying, maybe even daily, is that we would draw near to God. We as individuals, but we as a congregation, we as a church, would draw near to God and then just ask him to do amazing things in our midst as we grow closer and closer and closer to him. And to that prayer, to that prayer of drawing near to him, I want to add, and I'm praying this for myself and for you guys, hope you'll pray it as well, that all of us would hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Not because I say it, not because somebody else says it, but because God himself has promised that he's faithful, that he will fulfill his promises, and that he will work in us and through us to bring about that which is good for us and ultimately glorifying to him. So let's pray that we would hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess because our heavenly Father who promised it, is faithful. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are a faithful God. I thank you that whenever you make a promise, you fully intend to fulfill it, and you always do. And I thank you that you raised Jesus from the dead, and I thank you that because of that, we can have hope, not just as a possibility, but as a certainty, because we know that you're faithful, and you'll always do what you've said that you would do. And so I pray that in the darkness, I pray that in the trials, I pray that in the illness, in the pain, in the broken relationships, in all of the challenges that we go through in this life, I pray that in the midst of those difficulties, rather than turning away from you, I pray that we would draw near to you, that we would draw near to you with confidence and with boldness, and that we would seek and we would find the comfort and the peace and the hope that you offer us. And I pray that as we have that hope, ultimately in you and in your faithfulness. I pray that you would strengthen us to persevere, to carry on, even in the midst of darkness, even in the midst of discouragement, even in the midst of despair. And I pray that as we do, that others would see the hope that we have, and I pray that they would be drawn to that ultimately for their good and for your glory. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I'm glad that you guys came out this morning, and I hope that you have a wonderful week.